You're listening to the podcast of Williamsburg Christian Church, a community of faith joining God's pursuit of restoring lives. We hope you enjoy this week's podcast. So Micah chapter 6, just to give us a recap, because it's important to know the context, especially if you weren't here last week. The Assyrian Empire has influence over the smaller states of the Near East. Micah anticipates the fall of the northern kingdom of Israel and the destruction of Judah and Jerusalem. And both defeats that take place eventually result in large deportations of the Hebrew populations. History tells us that the residents of the northern kingdom were swallowed up forever and that Judah loses 46 of her surrounding cities. Jerusalem was saved only because the king made a deal with uh, Assyria. And so this is the background of Micah's prophetic word of judgment and of salvation. And we learn that the condition of God's people is kind of the same that it's been. Micah's contemporaries are Amos and, and Isaiah and Hosea. The pagan gods are being worshipped, the poor are being oppressed, the wealthy is getting more powerful, the courts are corrupt, politicians are crooked, business practices are dishonest, the priests and, the priests and prophets have sold out to greed, and the prophets now are just telling lies, whatever, whatever tickles the ears of the popular culture of that day. Society's disordered and morality is disregarded. And this is obviously, I think this is the most important piece um, of Micah, is Micah chapter 3, verses 9 through 12, when it says that they hate God's justice. They hate the notion that God is doing right um, despite the fact that they don't want Him to. They hate the fact that they can't have their way. They really want their way. They want things to be the way they want things to be. They have come to a place, God's people, where they believe they know what's right. And with all of their military might, with all of their economic power, they really believe that they can sustain themselves, that they can rely upon themselves. This is in the text. And that they somehow... I mean, they know they need God. I mean, they still worship Him, but, but they really believe that they can be self-reliant and self-sufficient, and, and they have forgotten. They had forgotten that all that they have, and it's cliche, and, and that's the thing, it's cliche to say this, but they had forgotten that all they have comes from God. I mean, they're like a lot of us. We, we readily acknowledge that all we have comes from God, but our fruits betray our faith. Understand? Like, our, our actions betray our beliefs. Because we say that all we have is from God, but we have this pull-yourself-up-by-your-own-bootstraps mentality, this, this self-reliance, self-sufficiency mentality. And this is the thing that God is speaking against. Because this never ends well for God's people. It never, ever ends well. And so God takes His people to court. Remember, that's the scene, the courtroom scene in Micah chapter 6. A courtroom drama, and the Lord is the plaintiff, the people are the accused, and the mountains and the hills and the foundations of the world serve as witnesses and jury. And so we'll read the text again. Now listen to what the Lord is saying. Rise, plead your case before the mountains, and let the hills hear your voice. Listen to the Lord's lawsuit, you mountains and enduring foundations of the earth, because the Lord has a case against His people, and He will argue it against Israel. And so now the plaintiff, who is God, presents his accusation first. And he says, my people, what have I done to you? We talked about that last week, the pleading of this text. How have I wearied you? 
testify against me. You can hear the heart of God through Micah. My people, what have I done? Why are you tired of me? The lawsuit has been filed, and so Yahweh is going to present his evidence. Indeed, I brought you up from the land of Egypt and redeemed you from the place of slavery. I sent Moses, Aaron, and Miriam ahead of you. I and my people, remember what Balak, king of Moab, proposed, and what Balaam, son of Beor, answered him, and what happened from the Acacia Grove to Gilgal, so that you may acknowledge the Lord's righteous acts. Now, to us, we may not, if, we don't, if we're not as familiar with the Old Testament narrative and the Old Testament story, that may kind of bleed in. We may not know exactly what God is saying, but God is essentially saying, you have forgotten who you are. You've forgotten where you've been. You've become self-sufficient, and you, you, you've committed your way to injustice, and this has led you to a sense of amnesia. You've lost the sight of my grace revealed in your own story. We talked about last week how grace is an Old Testament idea too. Micah wants to remind them that that before they ever did something for him, he did something for them. He says, I saved you from it. I saved you from Egypt. All you did was cry out, and I heard you, and I delivered you before you ever did a good thing for me. He sent them Moses with the law, and Aaron as a priest, and Miriam as a prophetess to guide them in their way. He delivered them from the curses of others and led them through the Jordan to find a home. They had forgotten what God had done for them. And they looked around their success and their fancy clothes, and they looked around at all the trade that was being made in their cities. They looked around at their army and their forces. They, they walked through the governor's palace and saw the weaponry and were reminded of where power really is. And they, they saw all that they had become Despite the rumblings of Assyria, they knew their story. They celebrated. They had monuments and tours. Their living history museums reminding them of, of who they had been and what caused them to be the great country and nation that they are. And subtly over time, despite their ongoing worship of God, subtly over time, they started believing in the lie that they had done this themselves. And again, don't get me wrong, they would sit in their worship assemblies. And they would sing songs to Yahweh, and they would proclaim His mighty acts, but they started thinking that they had done it themselves. And they had forgotten Deuteronomy chapter 8. If you'll look at the text, look up the screen. After God had delivered them from Captivity said, be careful that you don't forget the Lord your God by failing to keep his commands, the ordinance and statutes I'm giving you today. When you eat and are full, listen, when you eat and are full and build beautiful houses to live in and your, and your herds and flocks grow large and your silver and gold multiply and everything you have increases, read this with me. Be careful that your heart doesn't become proud and you forget the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt out of the place of slavery. See, Yahweh knows that this is human tendency. Everybody's a Christian when the plane's going down, but when we're on the plane riding smooth, all is well. Oh, wow, look at that engine. I'm glad I have talented pilots. Don't get me wrong, I am too. But I'm praying the whole time, Lord, bring your angels and carry us up. Keep this tin can in the air. And if it goes down, let it happen quickly that I don't have to think about it for more than five seconds. 
I just want to end up in front of Jesus. That's all I want. God knows that when things are good in our lives, we have a tendency to think we did it ourselves. He knows that about me. And he knows that about you. And he knew that about his people. That's why he called it out specifically. It does it. You can't misunderstand this. Verse 15, he led you through the great and terrible wilderness with its poisonous snakes and scorpions and thirsty land where there was no water. He brought you out of the flint rock, flint like rock for you. He led, he fed you in the wilderness with manna that your fathers had not known and in order to humble and test you so that in the end he might cause you to prosper. Verse 17, read it with me. You may say to yourself, my power and my own ability have gained this wealth for me. But remember that the Lord your God gives you the power to gain wealth in order to confirm His covenant He swore to your fathers as it is today. You can say that I did this. You can say that I got the degree and I got the job and I worked hard and I was raised to work 14 jobs growing up and, and I, you know, I overcame all the obstacles on my own, baby. I did it myself. And then you can project that onto everybody else and assume that they can too, which is where they had lost justice. It's in the text. You can remember that all you have from the very breath you breathe to the strength you exert, that you were, we were all born on third base. We didn't hit triples. And given the way society is formed, some were born on second and some were born on first. We were born in the game. We didn't get drafted because we were talented. And that's the point of the text. He knows that they're going to do this. He knows that we have this tendency. And what's happened is, Israel had gotten tired of God's politics. And his way of organizing their life and his ethics of loving neighbor and orphan and widow and immigrant. Because, you know, they have the land of opportunity too. Why don't they just get to work? Right? Like, that's the text. Materialism had won the battle for their hearts. All these herds of flocks and all the bowls of silver and the eating in the full and the beautiful houses and the silver and gold is multiplying and everything had increased and we just started forgetting God because we're talented. And so the Lord has the plaintiff has made his argument and he takes a seat in the row and the voice in the text changes and Micah plays the role of the accused and he says in Micah chapter 6 verse 6, so what should I bring before the Lord then? What should I bring before the Lord when I come to bow down to God on high? Should I come before Him with offerings, with burnt offerings? With year old calves, would the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams or with 10,000 streams of oil? Should I give my firstborn for my transgression, a child of my body for my own servant? Sin, can I, can I, can I buy God, can I buy God's pleasure back? Can I, can I do more righteous deeds, like more worship? Can I go to church more? Because all this is about religious ritual. Can I do more religious stuff? 
Can I do more religion? Can I sing more praise songs? Can I, can I increase the time that I go to church? Can I, can I give more money to the church? Can I, can I do more things? Can I sacrifice more things for the good of the church? Is that what, is that what I can do? In verse 8, the voice changes in the text and says, Mankind, he's told you what is good and what it is that the Lord requires of you to do justice. See, for those of you who are under the impression that I hobby ride social justice issues, it's in every text. I just call it out. Because that's what loving neighbor means and treating others as we would have to be treated. That's just called doing just loving. It's just another way of saying loving neighbor is loving self. That's all it is. Doing justice. Loving faithfulness. And walking humbly with your God. It is as if Micah boils the Torah down to three other ways of thinking about it. Where Jesus said all the law and the prophets hang on loving God and loving neighbor. Torah, it's almost like Micah saying, I tell you what, you want to know what goodness really is? You want to know how to do good things, how to be good? We say to our children, be good. You want to know how to be good? Do justice. Love mercy, our faithfulness. And walk humbly with God. The language there, walk humbly with God, in the, in the Hebrew means walk attentively. It doesn't mean humility in the same way we think. It says walk attentively. In other words, it says be careful with God. Say be careful with God. Be careful with the life of God. Do not take steps without realizing that you are loved by God, known by God, and watched by God, and you are a part of God's life. Now, I want you to think about this just for a minute. If we actually lived attentively to the presence of God in our lives, would we treat our neighbor poorly? Would we? I don't think so. Will we talk bad about our brother or sister? I don't think so. Will we say that slanderous thing about that person who is the other in our society that we feel doesn't belong? I don't think so. Walking attentively to the presence of God in our lives has a way of keeping us in our place. And when I am not in my place, and I'm my most prideful self, my most ego-driven self, my most defensive self. It's because I'm not walking attentively with God. I'm not walking humbly with God. It's what I've come to believe about me. Andrew Murray once said, the life of God bestows is a part, it is imparted not once for all a person's life, but each moment continuously by the unceasing operation of his mighty power. Humility, Andrew Murray says, the place of entire dependence of God on God is from the very nature of things the first duty and the highest virtue of a human being. Humility is not anything less than a place of entire dependence upon God. That is what humility is. It's not some woe is me, kind of, I'm just, you know, I'm, I'm just weak and weary sinner. That's not, that's not humility at all. That's not what the Bible means by it. It means a dependence upon God. It means an, an awareness and an attentiveness to the, to the need that we have for God. And frankly, 
Humility only comes, I think, to me when I am most aware of God's grace. When I find that I am my most prideful self, my most egocentric self, it is only when I realize that, it's when I realize that I just, because I somehow think that I'm, I'm doing things on my own, that I'm talented enough. It's, it's my lack of remembering that all I have is grace. When I'm my most prideful husband, it's when I forget that Allison is a gift of grace. When I'm my most prideful father self, it's when I forget that Ian is a gift of grace. When I'm most prideful to you, it's, it's when I forget that this, this calling I have on my life is just a gift of grace. There's nothing I could do to earn it. When I'm most prideful with my goods and I don't want to share them, it's because I've forgotten that it's all a gift of grace. When I feel the need to defend myself against you or defend myself against them, it's when I re- I've forgotten that I have nothing to prove or nothing to defend because all is a gift of grace. Look, I'm, I'm painfully aware of how jacked up I am on my better days. And you reminding me or them reminding me is what it is. Matter of fact, I'm in agreement on my good days. On my bad days, I get defensive. To walk humbly with God is to let it go. It's to realize that All I have is grace. So you want my shirt? Take my shirt. You want my $10? Take my $10. You want to come stay with me for a week? Come on. You want to pick a fight? I don't have to fight. Humility is a reliance and a total dependence upon God that leads us to a place where we really do have nothing to prove. Because our identity isn't bound up in anything less than God's love and presence. And I don't have to be all antagonistic. Now, this doesn't mean I can't truth tell because the other part of the text is doing justice. It's about doing justice too, which is part of why I mean, we have to. We have to love mercy. You know what it means to love mercy? It's to rejoice when someone doesn't get what they deserve. That's like the opposite of us. Loving faithfulness is to love mercy. It's to rejoice. It's to rejoice when someone doesn't get what they don't deserve as opposed to when they do get what they do deserve. This is the opposite of that. So these Auburn students that came... They came with all kinds of expectations, and they should have, right? Like, And at first, in the beginning of the week, when we were talking about poverty and homelessness and, 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 and the things that marginalize us, the students were concerned, well, when can we just tell them, though, that how they're living is not what God wants for them? Like, that was the question. When can we, when can we tell them? When can we tell them that how they're living is not what God wants? And so they met Collins, and Collins told his story about how he came to Jesus. They met Frank. They met several other people who've lived on the streets and lived in brokenness. And by the end of the week, you know what their question was? It was no longer, when can we tell them when how they're living is wrong? It was, when can we tell them about our brokenness too? 
You see the difference in tone? It was no longer about me fixing anybody now. It was about me identifying with the brokenness of humanity and then both of us rejoicing in the fact that only God could save a wretch like me. As opposed to, I can save a wretch like you because I can get you right. And I can point out those things. They were humbled because they listened. They let go of their need to save others and to prove something. And they realized that doing justly must flow out of a place that but for the grace of God, there go I. So Jesus knows we need this, right? And so he gives a story. Because he knows that we need live in a culture of self-sufficiency and that we have a tendency to lean towards self-reliance because, you know, that's how we were raised. It's just how I am. I've heard that. That's just how I am. I don't want God taking me to court. I don't want him taking you to court either. He knows we live in a culture of self-defense with antagonism. And so he said in Luke chapter 18, verse 9, he said, He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and looked down on everyone else. You can, that they were righteous and looked down on everyone else. Tell them, Fred. He said, two men went up to the temple complex to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. Pharisee took a stand and was praying like this, God, I thank you I am not like the other people, that you have changed me. I am so thankful, God, that you've changed me, and I'm not greedy and unrighteous and adulterer, even like this tax collector, this traitor to our country, this thief who works for the enemy. God, I thank you I'm not him. That's what a tax collector is. I fast twice a week. I give a tenth of everything I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even raise his eyes to heaven. He kept striking his chest and saying, God, turn your wrath from me, sinner. I tell you, this one went down to his house justified rather than the other. Because everyone who exalts himself, exalts himself will be humbled. The one who humbles himself will be exhausted, will be exalted. I don't know if you've ever noticed, but the fruit of the Spirit is not humility. You ever noticed that? Have you ever noticed that there's a command that Christians humble ourselves? That we are told to humble ourselves? You ever noticed that? The Spirit won't do that for us. We have to choose it. I find that very intriguing, that the fruit of the Spirit is love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and gentleness and faithfulness and self-control, but not humility. I find it very intriguing that the Bible teaches us that we are to humble ourselves. It is like God is saying, look, you got to do that. you got to do that. You've got to make a choice, Fred. 
to realize you're no better than anyone else, that all you have is grace, and that you need to follow me where I go. And then I think God says to me, I think God says to me, and Fred, if you're going to follow me wherever I go, I want you to tend then. This is the do justice part. I want you to tend to the places I went, and I want you to go to the margins where I went. Because I need you to let people know that since all is grace, all is welcomed. And since all is grace, all can be forgiven. And I need you to go out into the margins of places, and I need you to go sit with the treasonous tax collectors, and I need you to do what I did, because I need you to remember that all is grace, and you need to walk very attentively with me, walk humbly with me, and go where I go. But before you can do that, you have to choose, right? You have to choose to be willing to do that, because there are going to be people who are going to say their prayers, and are going to point their fingers at you and others, and other people, and you're going to point your fingers at them, and there's going to be a lot of finger pointing going around, where everybody at some point's going to fall into the trap of self-reliant self-sufficiency and think they're better than everybody else. And then play the victim or play the martyr. Victim, martyr, victim, martyr, victim, martyr. That's the hellish cycle of life is being the victim. Nobody loves me. Nobody reaches out to me. Nobody knows me. And martyr. I did this and I do this and I've been doing this forever, but nobody loves me and nobody reaches out to me and nobody. And Jesus is saying, look, all is grace. Stop being a victim. Stop being a martyr and just do justice and love mercy and walk humbly with God. Fred, that's what you've got to do. Stop feeling so sorry for yourself. just tend to the presence of God and tend to the grace of God because the work of God's grace is to make us more gracious and the truth of God's grace is to make us more humble. He calls us to a life of love, not lambasting. He calls us to a life of mercy, not malice. He calls us to a life of compassion, not contempt or condemnation. He calls us to a life of generosity, not greed. He calls us to a life of selfless giving over self-serving giving. He calls us to a life of sacrificial posture over a smug posture. He calls us to a life of relying upon His sufficiency over our own self-sufficiency. And you need to know what I'm learning myself. We need to know. There are always going to be people that are raised up around us that are going to be antagonistic. That are going to judge motives and judge hearts and throw you under the bus and stab you in the back. And they're going to be in this church. You're going to turn around and there are going to be knives coming at your back. They're going to send emails and post statuses and tell their neighbors. It's going to happen here. And it should happen here. Because none of us are where we should be. None of us. But God doesn't love us as we should be. He loves us as we are. And I praise God for that. So then when that happens, Maybe, just maybe, we can love mercy. We can do justice. We can walk humbly with God and with them anyway. Because I'm going to be that person who throws a knife. I may be that person that sends the email. 
And I'm going to need people to love me even when I become the Pharisee. And we're going to need one another to love one another when we all become Pharisees. And the great leveling agent that God has given all of us each week for Pharisees and tax collectors alike is the table. The table where we remember that no matter how much I think I have my stuff together. <laughs> but for the grace of God, there go I, right, George? No matter how good I may think I am, and my politics are, and my ideology is, and how well-informed I think I am, but for the grace of God, there go I. No matter how right I want to be over being kind, for the grace of God. Or when I feel like the tax collector, where I am painfully aware of my sin and brokenness, and I beat my chest with my head bowed low in the presence of God, crying out for mercy. Like a father who loves us, he pulls us up by our chin and he says, Look at me. Come on, come to the table. And but for the grace of God, there go I.